You're listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast that discusses politics, history, activism, theory from a revolutionary socialist perspective. My name is Rose Ward. I'm the host of the podcast and our producer is Liam Ward, who's joining us today and hopefully joining in the discussion a bit today. Hi, Liam. <laughs> Hi, Rose. I would like to begin by acknowledging that we record this podcast on Aboriginal land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, it's never been ceded, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. And our guest on this episode to talk about what's going on right now in Australia in particular uh, is one of the contributing editors of Red Flag Newspaper. Obviously, we're the Red Flag podcast, so we have a bit to do with Red Flag Newspaper. And we're often picking up on um, some of the articles that appear in Red Flag, and one that caught my eye in particular I thought was – potentially useful to discuss is about how the pandemic basically is a pandemic or the results of the pandemic as they currently stand are the outcome of neoliberalism basically. So Louise O'Shea is the contributing editor at Red Flag, wrote this piece. Um, We're going to talk to her about it and some of the issues coming out of that. Welcome back to the podcast, Louise. I think it's your third time, is it? Um, no, it's my second time. Thank you for having me for a second time. Oh, pleasure. We're, I'm sure we'll have you for a third time, so we can reuse that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you came on at the beginning of March when we were just starting to sort of see the pandemic unfold, um, and a bunch of what we talked about then has sort of been borne out. Is there anything you wanted to reflect on from from back then, how things have changed or moved on or claims that you made that were correct? (laughs) Well, every claim I made was correct. Um, I mean, at the stage of the last podcast, we didn't really know what was coming or we thought that Australia was likely to go down the same road as we witnessed in Italy and as it was beginning in the US. And for a while there, it seemed like, you know, the various levels of Australian government had worked a miracle and, kind of New Zealand style managed to keep the thing under control. Um, but that's come to an abrupt end with the um, latest outbreak in Victoria having been quite devastating. Um, and I guess the reasons for that is uh, been very um, stark that it's not a matter of um, the disease itself and its very um, sort of potency. It's a matter of the society that it, it is existing within and the conditions that have been created by 40 years of neoliberalism and the, the nature of modern capitalism. Mm. And it has, it, I mean, it's been notable really that um, from the beginning, what we've argued as socialists is that the government strategy should be based on the desire to see basically the elimination of this virus and, it's never been that strategy. It's been mm. a kind of reduction, a containment to a certain degree, but never to the extent to which, um, you know, the economy has to suffer, I guess, in their terms uh, for the sake of actually 
getting rid of this virus altogether? Yeah, I think the government, both various state governments and the federal government, probably genuinely did want to keep the virus under control, but not for the sake of people primarily, but as a means to an end in order to keep the economy functioning because they were um, cognizant of the fact that once it started to get out of control, there was no real option but to shut down the economy, which is a scenario that they most keenly wanted to avoid. Um, And so, but I guess the kind of practices and sensibilities of neoliberalism are so deeply ingrained in the political class, Labor and Liberal, that they basically couldn't avoid the outbreak. Like, you know, the fact that the uh, outbreak in Victoria began with the mismanaged hotel quarantine program that, you know, the was contracted out to cut price security firms to run and without even a second thought, like it was just so like that's just what government, that's what governing is. You um, have some government responsibility and you find some company that will um, attempt to turn a profit from fulfilling that, um, you know, whatever that uh, objective is. And, um, yeah, so the, the government just without thinking, and there's still in some states security companies that are, play a large part in maintaining quarantine, the government, uh, it was second nature that they would get uh, security companies to uh, operate this, which was really at the time the front line of the virus coming into Australia through return travellers, huge numbers of people were coming back. And it was the, the um, you know, front line. And to have people, some of whom just do a, one, a half hour module on the internet as their training, who were told that um, personal protective equipment is not necessary um, you know, early on the government was insisting you didn't even need to wear masks, let alone, you know, face shields and gloves and all that jazz. Um, so, it was, I mean, it's incredible that the outbreak isn't worse and isn't in more places um, if you think about that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's like there's no exception or well, there's not even a, a moment of hesitation before privatising everything basically to um, companies that make profit out of it, even in a global health pandemic that no one's ever seen before, they still think, oh, yeah, subcontractor, subcontracting stuff is fine. Like, I'm sure it will be fine. And this is and people's lives. it doesn't lives, matter you know? yeah. how many times it's it's It goes wrong. Like, yeah. Royal Commission after Royal Commission, like the one going on now um, about aged care, you know, says the privatised model for profit um, aged care operators is failing. It's, you know, the the... Providers are more concerned about ways to cut costs, cut down the skills and the cost of um, staff, um, and it's in every area of the economy. Um, that you know, this isn't sort of um, a lack of of knowledge of where where these policies get you, but it's so ingrained that the market will do a better job of providing than government. Like the federal government, um, according to the register, where they have to register all the um, the contracts that they enter into, there's nearly 80,000 contracts every year that the federal government um, has approved with various companies to provide various um, government, what would have once been government services. Um, you know, here in Victoria, you know, public housing is farmed out to these social housing providers who are private entities where the same rights are not guaranteed uh, for tenants. 
in the aged care sector, the same um, nurse-patient ratios, the same uh, mandatory investment in care rather than upgrading the assets of the providers is not guaranteed in the private um, for the private operators as compared to public. And yet, you know, there's no deviation from the idea that private is best and, um, you know, letting the market uh, work out how to allocate these services will deliver the best outcome. And, you know, it's disproven again and again, but we've still got to put up with it. And now it's killing people. It's terrible. Yeah, I was trying to think of, like, any area of um, sort of public service that has been expanded and uh, the kind of um, the provision of that service more provided by people working directly um, for the public through the government, through the state, and there's really, you really can't think of any. Um, I mean, even things like you think, well, they expanded kind of people working in around Centrelink and trying to get people to do their mutual obligations, but that's all privatised. You know, that's all um, people who bid to be the lowest bidder to get people to do their um, what they need to do to get their benefits and so on. So, it's, yeah. It's just, it's endemic, that um, privatisation and profit motive. Yeah, I mean, the only government functions that they don't uh, apply this philosophy to is like the military and things where, yeah, the police, the state, the regulation of workers and labour. Because it's important, neoliberalism is not actually just small government letting the market in everywhere. It's government plays an active role in society, but it's to facilitate the markets, to facilitate private for-profit entities taking over more of um, more of society wherever and the government may you know subsidizing them to do so or providing them the legal framework to do so invading other countries to secure that sort of operation whatever it might be mm. Liam did you want to get in uh, yeah there was a, a an example that I found today actually of you know that the, the, you might have seen the news last week about the newly appointed newly crowned uh, highest paid CEO in the country. Uh, this guy whose name escapes me, but he's the CEO uh, of, a, of a group. Well, his, his salary is $38 million. Uh, so, he's the highest paid CEO in the country. He's the CEO of a company that uh, runs, you know, this privatized company that runs the English language tests for international students. So, and t- that's an example of the way that this kind of, the opening up of education to this neoliberal model isn't just about the fees from the students themselves. It then sets up this kind of secondary industry in in uh, you know running the tests for English language profici- proficiency for those students, and that's all privatised. And this guy's earning thirty eight million a year out of that. And the other interesting tidbit there is that the universities, who are themselves you know ostensibly publicly public institutions, their industrial body EA, the Education Australia, or University of Australia, sorry, EA is a 40% shareholder in that company. So the combined total uh, revenue that these universities have made through this company in the last 12 months is almost $2 billion. And this has come out at the same time that they're all launching attacks on staff and sacking hundreds of people. So, yeah, that's an example. <laughs> He's called Andrew Barkler. There you go. But don't worry, Liam, his salary is only 420 times more than yours. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, he deserves it, surely. Okay, so we've got the the subcontracting at the quarantine hotel, and then I think the thing that probably didn't surprise us, but has been pointed out belatedly 
um, by the media is the fact that there's a direct correlation between people in working class jobs and the spread of the virus from that initial outbreak. So basically people who have to work in what well, are uh, <clears throat> now frontline, but you wouldn't think of them as frontline jobs with no sick pay, all of that kind of stuff is still part of that same pattern. Do you want to say something about that? Um, yeah, well, I mean, one of the observations <laughs> made during the inquiry into the hotel quarantine debacle was that um, the, the, the horror that the security guards were arriving at work um, in just two cars, eight security guards came in two cars, so that security guards were um, carpooling, presumably because they live in the, in the same areas. And, um, you know, they were like, well, well this is the argument for the um, more PPE. But, in fact, it's a pretty obvious argument for higher wages. Like people should be able to... A lot of the workforce in Australia is able to has high enough wages that's able to afford to run a car. That security guards in an industry notorious for underpaying people, having even the the um, legal conditions are some of the lowest. But these companies um, are renowned, like two two of the three companies that the government has contracted out the quarantine program to have just in the last two years been involved in um, scandals over wage theft. One of them had to Wilson had to back pay seven hundred thousand dollars to uh, to its workers after a ACCC uh, investigation into its practices. So these are low paid workers who are being underpaid. Um, and so you know what happens if you're underpaid? You carpool to work. You're living ha- housing that is more crowded. You have jobs that are more precarious, low paid. People in your families have those sort of jobs. And even when the government provides some degree of um, uh, pandemic leave and says, you know, if, if you're if you're experiencing symptoms, you know, we'll give you a certain amount to stay home. But it just doesn't cut it for people. Yeah, three hundred dollars. I mean, a it might not be enough to sustain you, but it just doesn't get to the key dynamic, which is that the workers feel vulnerable and powerless in relation to their job and their boss. And sometimes, even if you have every right in the world not to turn up to work, it's going to be held against you by your boss. And when there's plenty of other people that they can find to do the job. Um, you know, people feel like they still can't do it. They still can't stay home when they're sick or whatever. And also they're the kind of jobs that, you know, people have to keep turning up, like cleaning and stuff like that. You can't do that from home on a computer. And so, you know, the nature of the, the um, you know, perfect storm, the nature of the work, the precariousness of the work, the feelings of insecurity, the fact that, the you know, there's no sense that anyone will defend you if the boss stops rostering you on for shifts because you um, call in sick too much um, means that, you know, it's more likely to spread in the areas that it's taken hold in the working class northern suburbs than the first time around when the virus was coming in primarily through more wealthy people who had a whole different life experience and meant the virus could be uh, gotten under control quicker. Yeah. And what you described there is exactly the conditions for people who work in aged care. So subcontracted, casual hours, um, yeah, basically highly precarious, um, very dubious safety conditions even without a pandemic and then you throw that all together and you've just seen this absolute horror unfolding which every day when they release the um, numbers of people who die, they say, oh, like I think today every one of those was, in, was an aged care resident. Um, 
the government is now taking over some of these aged care centres because basically if they didn't, everyone in them would die because they're not getting water and food and dressed and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's amazing really. I mean, yeah, people are rightfully outraged about it. But again, all of the signs have been there for a very long time that something like this could easily happen. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about aged care for a little bit and how that, again, relates back to this overarching neoliberal agenda. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're right that the the providers and the government to some extent are hiding behind the idea that, oh, well, these are old people and, you know, if they probably didn't have much longer to go, they're probably more vulnerable. But there's actually no reason why that should be the case. In fact, the institutions that are housing and supposedly caring for old people should be the safest place for old people to be. They should be acknowledging that this is a vulnerable population. There should be all sorts of measures in place um, to make sure to protect people in these aged care centres. Just because someone's old doesn't mean it's fine for them to die, which is sort of the prejudice that they're um, uh, hiding behind to some degree. And you think um, that's the reason that people are okay with putting their family members in aged care because they think they're going to get looked after better than they could be by them at home. Exactly, yeah, which is why it's so heartbreaking that the families feel guilty. And um, they spend all their fucking money on paying for that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they have to put up these massive deposits and pay um, fees and yeah, then to end up like this, it's appalling. And, you know, again, that there's... Um, it was pretty obvious from the beginning. I mean, Australia was lucky in that it wasn't, you know, the virus didn't take off until we witnessed the experience of other countries where it was obvious that old people were going to be the most vulnerable. And yet the aged care providers who would have known that this was, you know, uh, a very high likelihood that, you know, there'd be some outbreak somewhere in Australia that they appear to have taken none, you know, very few, if any, measures to prepare for that. Like the um, the the union, the nurse and um, midwives union, did a survey of all their members to try and work out, you know, changes in staffing levels since the beginning of the pandemic, and eighty um, percent of them said there'd be no increase in staff. Twenty percent said there'd been decrease in staff because they're always looking to decrease the staff because wages is the biggest outlay for aged care providers. Um, and, you know, that's just an absolute outrage. And, you know, the government uh, bears, the federal government bears ultimate responsibility for aged care, but they don't want to criticise the providers because the government doesn't want to have to take responsibility for actually providing aged care. They they um, are basically want to cover for these providers so that they can continue giving money to private companies to provide um, this service and the uh, government doesn't have to. And it's just let, led to an absolutely disastrous and tragic um, outcome, let alone all the reforms that have um, given the providers more latitude to cut back on the, the amount that they spend on care for people and uh, giving them the the... Um, capacity to use more of it for, um, you know, upgrading their assets, like buying more buildings, expanding the number of beds and that sort of mm -hmm. thing so that they can make more money. And we're still, I'll shut up in a minute, but we're still, like the inquiry now, which is now talking about the impact of the pandemic, is recommending that there be a levy on taxpayers to 
um, to deal with the crisis in aged care. And, I mean, the vast majority of funding already comes from the public. Like the biggest provider, I think it's Bupa, nearly 75% of their um, revenue is government money. And so all of us, working class people, are going to be struck with a levy to to give to these uh, for-profit, you know, it's a $1.2 billion um, uh, profit industry each year. Um, whereas, you know, if we said, oh, we'll tax the rich or force them to put their profits into providing, you know, a, a, a certain number of nurses per resident, that would be dismissed as, you know, socialism. But it's okay to tax workers to basically pay to sustain these private providers' profits. Mm. Mm. We're already paying for um, Geelong Grammar's extra equestrian centre through our tax. So. Yeah, I mean, that I don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Don't say no to a pony, but... Yeah. I mean, and, and then, you, like, it's sort of slowly being revealed. Although I think in Victoria, Dan Andrews still says he won't name every single facility that has had outbreaks because they want to protect their, I guess, commercial reputation, which is outrageous. Mm. But the ones that are obviously you know, being taken over and run by public servants and nurses and everything now, um, the owners of these places, we're starting to see their kind of profiles and their lifestyles and everything, and it is just absolutely Mm. disgusting. If people are not outraged about the fact that basically, you know, they can make a decision to run these aged care facilities with less staff Basically, you give them fucking slop every day and cream off the money that they save and buy themselves Maseratis and fucking Gucci and, you know, furnish their disgusting mansions mm. with whatever disgusting crap that they want to buy. It's just like, it's, un, you know, it's, it's just another add it to the list of indictments of capitalism. But, really? but the, but the, yeah, but the fact that, Caring for people is now so seamlessly a profit-making industry. Um, I mean, Americans would appreciate this already, I guess. But, yeah, I think it's very shocking for people and they should be shocked. So the, the possibilities for turning any of this around, I mean, we're not, we're not seeing people arguing for, a, well, the Victorian socialists are arguing for uh, fully public funded and run aged care, but nobody else is talking about it. The Greens are not talking about it. And the unions, in fact, in terms of turning things around, seem to be very happy to go along with a lot of what the government has been doing so far. And as far as the government consulting people about, you know, what to do in a massive health pandemic, we're seeing these kind of secret new decision-making bodies like the COVID commission um, taking on these roles within government and we're not quite sure on what basis. Can we say something about that? Because I think that's another kind of neoliberal, it's as if it's a technocratic solution, but these people are not even technocrats in the right industries. Yeah, no, the COVID commission is, um, yes, Crazy, like the government has picked out a whole lot of CEOs and board chair people to run a commission to deal with the disease. Like it's the sort of thing that you think uh, health experts, medical people, epidemiologists should deal with. 
not. I mean, the person heading it up is the CEO of Strike Energy, a major fossil fuel and gas company. Um, you know, it's just it beggars belief that this these sort of people should be in charge of dealing with the response. And I think, you know, what it is is, you know, the government is taking doing a lot of measures that should be being done because in the name of public health, but they're also sneaking under the radar a lot of measures that are about setting up for a post-COVID or even not post-COVID, there's probably never going to be a post-COVID era, but just setting up for um, pursuing their general um, political agenda uh, with the authority of um, taking on the pandemic. And so, you know, it's all about how is the Australian economy going to recover from this biggest crisis it's um, ever faced. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, what is this commission made up of fossil fuel executives recommending but, you know, a gas-led recovery where Australia beefs up its gas ex export capacities by, you know, subsidising and whatever, God knows what else, major a massive gas pipeline apparently. Yeah, great. Which always works out well. Great initiatives like that. Whereas, in fact, like, you know, upgrading the health system, using this pandemic as a wake-up call for what a disastrous state public services are in and what a huge scope there is to improve that, you know, that would take some human decency as the, you know, guiding force of your decision-making, not, well, how can we um, use this pandemic to shovel more government money and subsidies towards major corporations that are destroying the planet? You know, that's the logic of capitalism. Mm. And that actually what they mean by recovery is not people's health or like you can imagine that there's going to surely be a mental health kind of pandemic after this it, across Australia but particularly in Victoria and stuff with people like people's lives being impacted so much in various different ways but no it's not about a health recovery it's about an economic recovery of course because yeah profits before people Some discussion, and I think it's probably a bit less now, but given the increase in welfare payments, the JobKeeper stuff, the increased role of the government actually in many ways through the crisis in Australia but also internationally, there's, there's some talk of like, well, actually, this isn't very neoliberal that the government are wanting to pay out more to individuals, like even in America, you know, the unemployment benefit going up and so on, that maybe there's a chance that this will somehow emerge in a different form of capitalism, uh, maybe a more generous one in some way or another. Like what's the hope of a non-neoliberal future after this? Well, I mean, I think it is neoliberal still in the sense that government coming to the aid of corporations when there's an economic crisis is not uh, incompatible with neoliberalism. Like Obama spent trillions bailing out the banks in the global financial crisis in 2008. And I think a lot of the measures while that are being taken by the Morrison government, while not ones that we should object to, in fact, we should demand um, that they spend more money subsidising, um, you know, workers while they can't work, but they're also very cleverly a handout, a major handout to business. So the JobKeeper program 
is at the same time as it's helping workers survive the pandemic, it's also propping up businesses because it means that, you know, the um, businesses are basically continuing to operate, but with the government paying their wages bill, which is a very important outlay for businesses. So these businesses appear to continue being like making money, even though they're not at all viable. Um, so it's, it's, and I think that's why on the part of Australian bosses, there's more acceptance of a lot of these um, measures because, you know, ultimately a lot of it is um, uh, either directly or indirectly being um, acting as a subsidy for business. Um, so, you know, there's not a big push by the wealthy and that to, to reopen the economy like in some other places because, you know, the, the government's demonstrating that for all the talk of, oh, there's not enough money to fund this or that um, that people want pre-COVID, as soon as the economy thre- threatened and businesses' profits are threatened, there's just money coming out of thin air, tons and tons of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the bosses are willing to tolerate that. If the government can, can continue going into debt without too bad consequences, the, the bosses aren't going to object that they're getting their effectively um, big handouts. Um, but, you know, I don't think, uh, so I don't think there is another um, sort of model for them to turn to anyway. I think, you know, neoliberalism isn't just a few policies. You know, it's the basic um, bread and butter of modern capitalism and there's not going to be sort of some, some something that can um, readily take its place. It's just, you know, limping along with the same rotten logic. But, so long as it doesn't face concerted resistance, it can continue to limp along. On the other hand, the year of the pandemic is starting to generate some resistance, as we've already seen in America, now in Belarus, in um, uh, Iran, in um, Lebanon in response to the explosion. Um, because, you know, like a war, it started to disrupt all people's um, sensibilities and um made things that previously seemed impossible seem possible. Like there can be this radical restructuring of the economy. There can suddenly be tons of money to maintain a decent standard of living for unemployed and low-paid workers. Well, you know, maybe maybe other things are possible and, you know, there's the um, motivation to act because people feel their whole future is threatened by this. Will they ever have a job again? Um, so it's created a more volatile situation that, has raised the possibility, I think, or greater possibility of some resistance that can, you know, just um, defeat and kill this uh, zombie of neoliberal capitalism that is just going to keep um, keep walking on until something's done to stop it from our side. Mm-hmm. And those small signs, yeah, I mean, the, the signs are emerging internationally and it's still early days because I think the other part is, as you said, the propping up of businesses for now, in Australia at least, is helping people keep their jobs. But there's got to be some limit to that, at which point the government just lets a whole lot of businesses go to the wall um, because it, it can't indefinitely just keep propping up kind of small and medium-sized businesses and so on. The big corporations, fine, but, yeah, I think that there's a wave of economic suffering that hasn't even started in Australia and that people are feeling okay on the job keeper and increased job seeker. And when that stops, which it will, and it's already been kind of foreshadowed, maybe in September, maybe a bit longer, then the idea of like, what have you got to lose? <laughs> and do you want to actually do something to 
feel like there's a different future that's possible even, um, even if there's not all of these wins immediately, I think will become even more of a sharp kind of proposition for people. Yeah, and there'll be businesses that um, benefit out of a whole lot of companies going broke as well, like as is always the case. Like there was someone on the radio the other day talking about how all your, the independent cafes and bars that make Melbourne such a great place to live are going to be bought up by chains and, you know, McDonald's and whatever. And, like, that's that might be regrettable if you don't like McDonald's, but, like, that's just a part of capitalism, you know. If, if businesses can't survive crises, the big ones swallow them up and get bigger. Um, and so, you know, for some of the big business, will they can be happy to see all this government support for small business taken away um, because, you know, that, that lets, rip, lets the market rip and the extremely wealthy get even more wealthy. That's, that's the way capitalism works. So. And internationally, the, people can look up the lists of the um, amounts that billionaires have increased their wealth during the pandemic. You know, so that idea of the, yeah, the super rich just continue to benefit whether it's crisis or not. In fact, in many ways, they've got richer out of Christ, periods of crisis than they ever have out of periods of economic stability, um, which is another inherent fucked up contradiction of capitalism, I guess. But what we're looking for um, and, uh, and in being part of socialist organising is opportunities to kind of spark or intervene or have anyone kind of lead a sense of resistance because, as I said before, the unions seem to not be capable of doing that at this point and the Greens have kind of gone to ground. So it may actually be, you know, small organisations or individuals in workplaces or, you know, things like through the NTU fight back intervention in, in the union that me and Liam are in, pushing things to try to get in that direction of we don't just have to um, lay down and die in this crisis, basically. I mean, where's the hope there for people taking a lead in fighting back? Yeah, well, I think starting small is quite realistic. Like we're, we're pe- sometimes a matter of individuals or sometimes uh, more than that can get anything to happen. That you kind of got to just do it yourself. Like, um, yeah, the university workers through NTU fight back is a good example, but also the warehouse workers that recently had a successful strike and won a, a significant pay rise, you know, they can see there's an opportunity for some groups of workers out of this. Like the um, both the government, the um, the warehouse, um, Woolworths and Coles, two major corporations, are very dependent on warehouses distributing goods to people who need them. Um, so for some workers, their strategic uh, position in the economy is strengthened and they, they can sense that and, you know, strike action can get results. And, you know, the problem, though, is that th- those workers have had to do that off their own bat. There's not leadership coming from any quarter that says this is appropriate or this is the sort of um, what we need to rebuild and the pandemic is demonstrating the importance of that. In fact, you know, the union leaders have been atrocious during the pandemic like they spent more time trying to conciliate trying to encourage a spirit of class collaboration and we're all in this together amongst workers um more than they even do in in normal times 
And partly that reflects their weakness. Probably they didn't have much choice but to do that because they've run down union membership, they've run down the culture of combativity inside the union movement to such a terrible degree that even if they wanted to wage a fight, were they really in a position to lead such a thing? But um, but to, to, to do what they've done, which is to basically try and inspire uh, effectively inspire confidence in the government. Now they're involved in drawn out secret negotiations with um, with a whole lot of bosses, uh, organisations, and corporations um, to come up with recommendations that the government may or may not decide to adopt for industrial relations reform and God knows what else. This is an absolute no win scenario for workers, and you know they're they're entering into these talks behind closed doors with no leverage whatsoever like a completely um passive uh, union movement um and you know this is what they have to offer workers at a time when people you know millions of people's livelihoods are threatened um you know mass unemployment is a new reality and this is what the unions are doing like um and yet what is encouraging about the situation is that there have there have been pockets of resistance and basically that's that's where we have to start rebuilding some sense of, um, you know, that it can be done. And the fact that the, you know, warehouse workers have had some success, that the university workers have at least stopped a um, terrible deal that would have been a political victory for um, uh, for universities is uh, positive and shows that, yeah, like they, it can be done and mm-hmm. hopefully gives some encouragement to other groups of workers. Well, hopefully coming up soon we'll have some um, episodes of the podcast that are about resistance this one was not about that but it sets the scene i guess uh for that resistance to come and so louise thank you so much for um coming back on the podcast thanks Thanks, liam and don't forget you can support us on patreon we keep getting new supporters it's fantastic patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast and we appreciate your feedback if you have any do get in touch with the show and you can find out how to do that in the notes You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.